This is a Federal News Network podcast. U.S. Space Command is in charge of military operations outside of the Earth's atmosphere. But it needs a headquarters here down on Earth. Exactly where, though, that sparked a lot of contention. Some lawmakers suspected foul play in the Defense Department favoring Huntsville, Alabama, as the new home for the command. Now there's a DOD's Inspector General report weighing in on the legality of that decision. We get more now from Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. And what was so contentious about going to Huntsville? Well, military, top military brass had originally wanted Colorado Springs to be the Spacecom headquarters. And that was really because uh, Colorado Springs is where uh, the U.S. Northern Command is and also where the a lot of space operations are at this point. However, in January of 2021, uh, that changed and, and it ended up going to Huntsville, Alabama. Part of that is some people suspect because then President Donald Trump wanted uh, it to go into Alabama and he actually said that afterward that he had played a part in doing that obviously that raised some eyebrows for some people and uh, they decided to be a uh, uh, they decided that they should look into this further especially after some prodding from the congressional delegation in uh, Colorado so it's one politician's choice versus another it sounds like was there in fact foul play what did they find right well what they found was that the the watchdog found that there was not necessarily foul play but they didn't really make a ruling on if there was foul play what they made a ruling on was whether there it was rational and legal for the defense department to do this and they did the report basically says that the they complied with federal law and DOD policy the air force did the same thing and the report goes on to say that 21 of the criteria used by base, basing, the basing office uh, was reasonable uh, for 18 of those criteria, criteria. Eight of those criteria couldn't be fully verified, however. Now, there's one thing that I should really point out about this report, though, is that everything that explains the criteria and the evaluation that went behind it is redacted. So if you want to really look at why they chose these bases, you can't really figure it out. You have to just kind of take the Defense Department Inspector General's word for it. I'll give you one example here. One, one sentence reads, we interviewed Spacecom, who told us that the office coordinated with the, the basing office personnel to ensure consideration of Spacecom requirements in four evaluation factors and 21 associated criteria. For example, Spacecom told us, redact it. So we don't really know what they said. However, we, we have to just really listen to what the inspector general said and take their word for it. Some of the criteria that they were looking at was a qualified workforce, communication bandwidth, support to military families, considerations for costs for DOD. And once they, they really drained all that down into something that they could look at, they turned it into a score of 1 to 100. Now, we don't know what those scores were. However, they, they had six different bases that ended up being the finalists for this. Number one was Huntsville, Alabama. Number two was Albuquerque, New Mexico. Number five was Colorado Springs. So, uh, you know, that was the final evaluation. But like I said, we don't know what it went into it. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni, and it seems maybe a little far-fetched, but could there be national security secrets buried in these criteria in some way? Yeah, you know, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, you certainly wouldn't think that military community or a workforce would really have much to do with, with that. You could maybe make the case that the costs of the bases and moving them there might be some sort of proprietary information, and that may have something to do with it. Maybe support issues, you know, like the, the support that these bases might get from other bases could be some sort of national secret. 
But this is a pretty heavily redacted report. It's 73 pages long. And I'm pretty sure that the Colorado delegation, well, they've already said that they're still reviewing this and they're not very happy with how it turned out. So we might see further investigations into this, which can also further delay Spacecom actually getting its office. And have members of Congress seen it in an unredacted fashion? We don't really know if they've seen it in an unredacted fashion yet. They haven't said. However, uh, Senator Mark Bennett and John Hickenlooper, who are the senators for Colorado, have both said that they've seen a draft report from the Government Accountability Office, who's doing a report in tandem. And they said that they believe that it's a flawed decision that happened, that the testing process lacked transparency and neglected key national security and cost considerations. So they said they're even more concerned after seeing this GAO draft report, which has not been released to the public yet. Yes, so there was lack of transparency as far as we can predict what GAO will say in the selection process itself, aside from the fact that the post-facto investigation by the IG is also redacted. Right. And, uh, you know, that kind of leaves another question of transparency in the the people that are in charge of transparency. So we're really kind of getting down into the uh, the weeds here with that. All right. And what else are the lawmakers saying? I mean, maybe what about the Alabama crew? They say, well, we like it here. <laughs> sure. Well, they're certainly happy about that. And, you know, the Trump administration wanted it to move over to Alabama. There's plenty of, of also space things in Alabama. It's Mistletown, USA, where they build many things that go intercontinentally and also into the uh, stratosphere and, and further beyond into the atmosphere. There's also some NASA assets down there as well. Uh, a few of the other bases they were considering were Bellevue, Washington, San Antonio, Texas, and of course, Cape Canaveral in Florida, where the uh, uh, rockets that go into space and the ones that went to the moon launched from. So, um, you know, there are plenty in, in consideration here, and we might just have to wait and see uh, how much more information comes out and what might be leaked in the future about, uh, you know, how these decisions came to be. And how many people are involved in Space Command and how big would the move be? And where are they now? Right. Well, Space Command is right now is in Colorado Springs. Like I said, many of the military's space assets are there. It's a pretty small command at this point. And really, they're, like I said, they're in charge purely of the military operations outside of the uh, Earth's atmosphere. If you want to get very technical about it, it's 100 kilometers out from the sea level up. Uh, so past that that level, they're in charge. Um, but, you know, it's still very small. It's still just growing. And they're still kind of figuring things out at this point. Um, but, you know, they're going to be in charge of some very important things. That includes looking and tracking uh, every single object outside of the U- of the Earth's uh, atmosphere and ensuring that those don't collide with any U.S. Uh, space-based satellites to, to, to ensure that everyone is safe and also that we don't lose any important assets. Federal News Network's Scott Mossione, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his story, which has a link to that redacted report, if you want to see the black lines yourself, at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way, not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. A financial plan isn't just about money. 
It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.